Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. Another week, another episode. And I'm your host, Roy Bensvi, and I'm happy that you're uh, listening. This week, I have Paul Hilton, who is a conservation photojournalist. He's been doing this for a very long time. And uh, if you go check out his Instagram, you'll see some of the photos that he posts from the wildlife trade, from pangolins, from um, the palm oil destruction, and what that does to orangutans, to elephants, and what's going on with uh, shark fins. So really just he, wherever there is a, an industry that's using and exploiting animals, Paul tries to, to get there and, and document it and hopefully shed some light on it and bring it to public opinion and uh, public awareness. We need more people like that. I love his work. I think it's very important because animals, the environment, trees, forests, oceans, they, they don't have a voice. They don't have a PR system behind them. They don't have lobbyists. So they need to have people who will advocate for them and uh, speak up for them either verbally or through images or documentaries, whatever the, 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 the format is, you know, it's crucial that someone does it. So he does a great job and uh, yeah, he's a super nice guy. When we spoke, uh, it was uh, 7.30 a.m. on the Sunshine Coast, sunny Australia. So uh, we are really 14 hours behind. And um, yeah, I think this is the first podcast I've done with someone in Australia, which is really, uh, it's pretty cool. I've been to Australia when I was, I believe, early 20s. I was there for about six months. It's a beautiful country. I didn't even, you know, only explored, you know, a small percentage. It's, it's a massive, massive country. So hopefully I can get out there uh, maybe after this whole thing ends. Guys, when you go on the iTunes or Spotify, if you can subscribe, review, the podcast. I really appreciate it. It uh, gives us a little bump in uh, on the on the iTunes pages, so it helps out. I don't want to talk about that too much. I just hope you enjoy the episodes and this um, episode specifically. So without further ado, here is the awesome Paul Hilton. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Hey, Paul, how you doing? Yeah, great, great. Um, how are you? Good, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. I wanted to have you on for a while, so I really appreciate you taking the time. No, for sure. It's, um, yeah, no, it's good, good to chat in these uh, uncertain times. I'm all for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, good morning. How is uh, how's Australia in the morning? It's like 7.30 a.m., right? Yeah, 7.30 a.m., and uh, we're sort of just, the weather's just turned. It's starting to cool down a bit. So, uh, but, you know, it's... Um, it's a great place to be during the, the COVID lockdown. Um, been really um, happy about being in Australia. You know, huge country, low population, and it's obviously helped contain the outbreak. So, um, yeah, it's been good for me and the family, actually. We've only been here 12 months. Before that, I was based in Indonesia. And then before that, um, China. So, yeah, it's probably I timed it right being back in Australia. Yeah, <laughs> I could say that. Yeah. We're, we're in Australia. I'm on the Sunshine Coast. Um, yeah, so there's a place called Noosa, which is quite quite famous. Is that um, Queensland? And, yeah, the Queensland. It's an hour and a half north of Brisbane. Okay. Yeah. I've, on the coast. Uh, I mean, I don't know, not specifically there, but I've been. You know, I I drove all along the the, the coast uh, many many years back. So beautiful. Well, area. yeah, you you probably would have come through this area. Where where are you based? Where are you calling? So right now, physically in Connecticut, but originally in New York, we just came to Connecticut uh, about two months ago because New York was just getting a little bit unbearable. Uh, you, you know, you really couldn't leave the house too much. And what you, most, New York City in the city? New York City yeah, and in Brooklyn. Yeah. 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 Okay. So well, you really you couldn't do imagine. too much, so we decided we decided to to, to we had there's a house here that we could come to in Connecticut and. It's been so much better. You know, we have two dogs. There's a backyard. There's hiking trails in the area. So it's, it's been a really nice uh, change of pace for us. Yeah, a little bit of nature on your doorstep really helps, right? Just seeing you going. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. It's just, it just it it makes it almost makes you a completely different person. Um, having that accessibility 
you know, having some green, some fresher air, it just you almost automatically become a little bit calmer, a little bit um, almost nicer <laughs> in a way. Well, no, they've done they've done a lot of research and and sort of housing communities where they do have access to green areas and parks and stuff. The the level of stress and sort of domestic violence goes down, and and it just shows that, that having nature close by really, yeah, it's, it's just good for everybody. So it's, yeah, uh, no, believe it, really, believe it, really important. So, yeah. So, can you maybe tell us a little bit about you know your background, um, how you started uh, photography? Oh, it's a long how I started photography. Well, now I'm a conservation we, we photo journalist. We have time. We have time. Yeah, that's that's sort of how I I, I sort of title myself. Um, I do wear a few different hats within within that realm. Um, but my photography, I picked up my first camera when I was about fifteen, I think. It was my mum's camera, and we were down on holiday in the Snowy Mountains. And I remember just and the Snowy Mountains for people that don't know, it's sort of Australia's sort of alpine region. It's only a thousand meters, or I don't know what you call it, maybe so just over, you know, four hundred feet. Um, but yeah. but but we do get snow up there, and 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 this sort of bushland does does change. And at the time, there's a lot of snow on the ground. And I remember just walking off with a camera and trying to photograph these stunning um, rosellas. They're beautiful. They're crimson rosella. They're stunning uh, blue and red against the contrast of the white and the green trees. And, um, yeah, I just really enjoyed that that time and, and sort of that stayed with me. And I really you know, just enjoyed taking those pictures and just me being in the great outdoors with a camera. Um, but growing up, I, there was no way I thought there's no way I could make a living out of this. I, I mentioned it once to my dad, and he said, "Stop dreaming, <laughs> get a real job." He said, "Yeah." <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, after I, I basically graduated from high school, and then was going to go into parks and wildlife, which is like a diploma in, um, I don't know, probably the equivalent of your ranges in Yellowstone National Park or something. Where you you yeah. become a parks and wildlife warden for a national park, and I thought about well that would be pretty cool because I'd always been into nature. I just was sort of always you know grew up always around it, and uh, I was pretty passionate about being in the great outdoors and just the environment and conservation really at that age. So I thought about that, and then I realised you know I don't really want to be twenty one, twenty two stuck in the Australian outback. I was too curious about the the great outdoors and, and the big wide world. So instead of doing that diploma, I decided I was going to travel and see the world and decide sort of what I want to do, how I'm going to actually make it in this life. So I ended up um, in a combi van 12 months around Australia. Oh, wow. Um, managed to get myself a, a, a camera at the time. It wasn't a great camera. And, um, and I ended up, yeah, spending time on the road, um, and the 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 van, the combi van, became pretty much a bit of a um, animal hospital because I don't know if you've done you you spend time in Australia on the road. There's a lot of roadkill, a lot of injured oh, animals. It's unbelievable. Um, it's massive. For people who don't know, it's it's almost the size of the U.S. It's unbelievably huge, and with like with what like a tenth of the population, it's it's unbelievable. Yes. Yeah, so, and unfortunately, the, the the things haven't really changed. This huge, like the roadkill, is actually out of control um, really? in Australia. Millions of species are killed every year because um, everyone's driving so fast. They don't still. They in some states now they do have wildlife corridors to crossing roads and stuff. It is changing, but obviously in Queensland where I am now, it's still pretty backwards in many ways, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, so the the combi van became this animal hospital, and at one stage. I think we had an, an injured um, a blue tongue lizard, which is a beautiful sort of uh, member of the skink family, about a foot long, beautiful animal. It eats fruit. That was fine. And then we had a, a, a um, water python, which was about four and a half foot, harmless, a restrictor. And and then there was a galah, which is sort of one of the Australian parrots. And it was just constant, you know, uh, between people – people hitchhiking us giving them lifts and managing the animals um yeah it just became a bit of a traveling circus almost um 
but it was it was fun days, good days, you know. And I was I was photographing out on the road, and uh, yeah. So and that sort of we had sort of odd jobs um, here and there around. Uh, I ended up in Darwin and top end of Australia, which is pretty wild part of the Northern Territory. Got some great national parks up there, Kakadu National Park, stunning, stunning area. Um, I ended up, um, you know, teaching windsurfing on a beach up there and uh, just making extra cash where I could. And so after about 12 months, pretty much did the whole loop of Australia. Still got so much, to, so much more to see. Um, but those those animals were released, and and it just went on like that for twelve months, where you were looking, you know, catch, basically, yeah, saving animals along the way, and uh, just having a good time, and just trying to work it out. Um, at the time, I was eighteen, nineteen, and then I uh, ended up um, spending some time, and I ended up um, going overseas. I ended up in Europe, in London. Um, because I'd met a lot of people on the road, I had I had contacts in London, and they said, "Come over and stay with us in in the UK." I ended up over there, and while I was there, I registered on a course. Um, it was a basic foundation course of photography at the Kennington School of Photography, and um, I think it was only about a six week course. But I really enjoyed it; really thoroughly explained things. It was it was obviously back in the day of film and transparency and um, we talked about flash photography and learn about um, darkroom and developing, and uh, so it was really, really useful. And that uh, gave me a bit more confidence. So, and then from uh, Europe, I ended up um, in Hong Kong because I had another contact out there. And so, all that time, I, I was always taking photographs. And then I met this Dutch photographer who. Used to work for the news agencies like AFP, Anjan French Press. So he he had a lot of experience, but then he was in the commercial side of stuff. And um, so I ended up uh, convincing him to give me a job as an assistant, which he did after he told me my portfolio was terrible and my images were out of focus. <laughs> he, he he sort of really you know burst my bubble, so to speak, and and told me that uh, you know my photography was pretty pretty average, but. Um, but it was but it was great. For, huh? Sorry. But he, but he liked you. Yeah, you know for sure we got on well. So he gave me a, yeah. gave me a go, and uh, so I ended up working with him as an assistant. And he just taught me the, the business side of the industry, which you know, with the, these days anyone can pick up a camera, especially now it's all digital. Anyone can pick up a camera and take a wonderful photograph, yeah. and, and they can get lucky time and time again. They can just keep shooting and until they get it right. But it's only twenty percent of the job. You know what I mean? The, the yeah, shooting yeah. bits, the the easy bit. <laughs> it's actually it's actually knowing taking an image and knowing how you're going to turn that into, uh, you know, turn that into credits, turn that into putting food on the table. So so he taught me a lot, um, and yeah, he was hard sometimes. Um, you know, he, he pushed me. I ended up uh, working crazy hours, doing a lot of big like hotel shoots with different lighting so would go into a hotel for example and when you back in the day when you shot a uh, transparency film color temperature of lights was so different so you had to literally put different colored gels on all the lights in the ceilings and sometimes it would just wow. take hours you'd have to lift, lift out every tube a fluorescent tube and put like a magenta gel on it to to color balance it to make it daylight so once you took that photograph the color balance was all the same. You wouldn't have different colored um, light temperatures throughout the image. So you could just get a man. It was sometimes it was so tedious. <laughs> and for people who so, don't know, now all you have to do is you're playing around in the computer while the while the while the photographer is shooting. It's it's it does it automatically, right? You don't even have yeah, to do it. Yeah, color balance, or you can do a white balance. Yeah. But literally, you can go to the color, you know, coding in, in Photoshop, and and you change the color like that. But we literally had to do it manually. And you you think of a big um, conference room of, that sits two hundred people, and you've got all these fluorescent tubes. Oh, so wow. we'd literally have to go and pull out each fluorescent tube, cover it in, in yeah, it was a magenta gel, which would balance it out. We'd have uh, light meters then and color balances, uh, color color meters, and it would give you the temperature. I think every like daylight's uh, five thousand six hundred Kelvin. 
So you've got to balance it to that. Anyway, it was tedious and it went on, but it, once again, it, it, it taught me a lot. And then um, I, at the time, the same time, while I was working for Michelle, I ended up, his name was Michelle Porro, actually. He's got a studio now in um, Amsterdam. I still keep in contact with him. He's a good guy. Um, so where was I? Um, yeah, so then during that time, I was doing sort of um, pro bono work or for any of the wildlife groups in Hong Kong at the time. And there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot going on. Hong Kong's a big city, but actually there's was, there was, there was, um, quite a lot of country park. And so I ended up doing some stuff for WWF. Um, they had a, it was a year of the, the tiger and, uh, obviously being in, in part of uh, being part of China or well, that, that's debatable, but, you know, being in that yeah. region, they do, they do celebrate Chinese, um, new year and, and the, the, the Chinese zodiacs. And it was a year of the tiger. And I ended up in some safari park taking pictures of, um, tigers for a calendar for, WWF and that's so I started that relationship and then at the same time I ended up working for Animals Asia Foundation which is um, a group that works within China to rescue bears from bear bile farming and they asked me to come along and document the rescue of these bears and and that was sort of the the sort of turning point where I realized that not only do I love photography but I could follow my passion of conservation and wildlife issues through photography. And, and from that, um, shooting the, the bear rescue, I think, and one of my images ran in National Geographic. It's in 2001 or 2002. And then made me realize that there, there was a, there was a way to actually follow sort of my dream, so to speak. But so it's through, it went through stages of, of doing the corporate work, commercial work, and then, and then transitioning to the wildlife and conservation because they didn't pay as well. So I used both of them at the time to sort of pay the bills, but also follow what I really wanted to do. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, um, you know, there's a lot of parallels like with in my life, or at least I know in, in a few other industries where you have startups for example where you're you want to focus all your energy and all your time in that startup but you're not making money for a good year or two or three so you want to supplement that with a little extra you know side gigs that you do or freelance work that you do for for a few years while you kind of work on your um passion project so, so exactly yeah and that, that's sort of how it evolved but remember at the time i didn't really there was no one there giving me advice on how to do it or you know, there wasn't like a clear roadmap. I was just trying to navigate it. Um, um, and at the time, yeah, it wasn't easy, but then, so, I, and then I ended up after that sort of period, um, I ended up, it was, so what was that bear bile farming? What was it? I, I documented that in early 2000s, 2001, 2003. And you can actually check out, um, uh, the, the wonderful work they're doing. It's animal, a animals, Asia foundation. Um, and go go have a look at this stuff. They're rescuing these bear bar, these bears in China. They're on these farms, and there's still ten thousand ten thousand of them in captivity. And it's pretty one of the most cruel practices. Um, but go and go and have a look, and and um, give them some support if you can, because they're doing such wonderful work. It's run by Jill Robinson, and she's an amazing person. She's dedicated her whole life to saving these bears. Um, yeah, but sadly, it is still going on. But, uh, yeah, yeah, go actually, check it out. I, actually, I read that. Um, I actually had uh, Mark Bickoff, uh, maybe like last month on, and he's he's also you know he's um uh, he's been researching animals his whole life, and he was also talking about animals Asia. He has a good relationship with with Jill, and he mentioned mentioned them as well. So that's uh, and I've been following that for for years. I I think of all the practices, you know, if you take circuses, um, I don't know all the different horrific things you know uh sea world etc cetera, etc cetera. Sure. i feel like bear life farms has to be the worst it's just putting these bears in a cage for i don't know a decade so they can't move yeah just... even like some of them more than two decades and they're in these cages literally they call them crusher cages and they the bottom actually can move up so when they want to extract bile these bears are sort of just locked into position 
and they just drain bile from these catheters. It's permanently in their gallbladder. And they're, they're in these conditions oh, for, like, for decades. And then someone like Animals Asia come, comes along, Jill Robertson, and they, they rescue these bears and they get them out of these crusher cages and they just don't know what to do when they put their feet on grass. They're just so used to standing on cement or steel bars. And you should see the changes that go on when one of these bears actually gets to stand on the grass again. Um, oh, it's just it's just so sad and it shouldn't be happening in 2020. But uh, let's let's hope with COVID, um, you know, people start to think a little bit more. You know, all I, I mean, can do I, is be I, hope, hopeful on, on yeah. those kind of issues. Yeah, I, I actually read the, the. I mean, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I read that they're actually. Um, doing more bear bile farms now because they believe that somehow whatever they, they extract from these bears can help with COVID. COVID. Yeah. I've, I've so read that like, just after. Uh, yeah. It, and they use any excuse. I mean, now it's COVID, you know, last year would be something else. 10 years from now, be, they just keep on making excuses to, to keep this. Well, it's, it's fabricated from, you know, the, you know, the market, the business, the businessmen, the traders, they're actually pushing this product. They just fabricate it, and that's that's how it goes. It's all about a good sales pitch, and unfortunately, a lot of people are quite gullible and believe it. And people yeah. just, yeah, they want to believe in a cure. They want to believe in something positive, so they they'll go with it. Sadly, um, yeah. So anyway, back. So I'll just continue a little bit. There's something I wanted to say yeah. about. So 2001, 2002, that was the the bear bile farming, and then just after that. And you you probably know that 2002-2003, I, I transitioned from Michelle as a corporate photographer and I started working for the news agencies. Um, and these are, you know, the, the news agencies where you see news photographs in newspapers. Um, the big ones are like AFP, Reuters, AP. But it was a new startup in Hong Kong at the time and it was um, European Press Photo Agency. So they gave me a contract where I would literally be on the street and I could go and shoot economic features. I could go and shoot environmental features. I could, I had free reign to go and just shoot uh, at something that, but it had to have a, a news angle. I had to peg something to it to do with the economy, um, to do with the environment. And it was actually really interesting time. But at that same time, when I took that contract, um, we uh hong kong went into the sars outbreak which came from china which it was an, another coronavirus um and it came out of the markets in guang guang guangzhou which is a southern city um from and they pinned it to a um civet cat uh which was being consumed in these markets um so so yeah now present day covid it's it's obviously similar to the wuhan outbreak as far as as far as we know um yeah. that uh yeah the same situation and so i was up there photographing these animals in these markets and like i said just the the conditions these animals were kept in it's surprising this hasn't happened more often you know with these these virus and um outbreaks just the conditions, the cages stacked on top of each other. Um, I asked, like one of the the owners, what what they have for sale, and he said everything in the sky, everything on the land, everything in the ocean. Um, there was at the time there was leopard cats, there was mongoose, there was like some kind of huge water rats, um, different species of birds, domestic animals, cats and dogs, all all put into this. You know, in this market, stacked on top of each other, and the high, you could. I've got one photograph. I never, I will never forget. You've got a, a whole wall of raccoon dogs, and these are bred for their fur and their consumption for meat consumption. And so you've got a whole wall of raccoon dogs, um, and then next door, literally on the floor next to these these cages, you've got a woman and a little child, and she's washing dishes, literally next to where all these animals are. You know, and it just goes to show how unhygienic a lot of these places places are and and how these viruses can just jump 
So that was a real wake-up call for me to, to actually really see that. And now, fast forward, yeah, it's, it's still going on. Um, and things haven't really changed from that, which is really sad. Yeah, you know, it's it's argument I, I hear a lot, uh, you know, especially people here in the U.S. will say, what can we do? You know, they're, over in China, they're, they're eating bats and pangolins and shark fin soup, dog, cats, tigers elephants tusks bear bile like you know you name it like you said anything under the sky and but all those things are happening in china like what can we do you know here obviously in the u.s there's kfos which which is horrific but it's it's i don't think it's nowhere near as horrific as what is as what's going on over in china and people here but, but the u.s change yeah. in asia yeah yeah but the u.s is the second biggest consumer and um of wildlife and wildlife products um, to do with your exotic pet trade as well. So, yeah, it is, it's obviously China's got some, some big issues going on. A lot of Asia, uh, in Indonesia, they eat a lot of bats and primates and uh, yeah. other, other species. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's definitely a global problem because these markets are all over the world. And I think what it really comes down to is our sort of relationship with wild and domestic animals. and you know we've abused them for so long and even within sort of the factory farming industrial farming of um you know cows and chickens and, and for, for pigs it's the same thing it's yeah. just yeah. disrespect um for these these animals and this was disregard for for life and i think everybody really needs to think about their interaction with with these wild animals i think because if not we we are going to end up in this place again and if we get through covid we don't know if it's going to mutate we don't know if we're going to get a vaccine we might be here to stay and it's we'll i don't know will, will we ever get to the bottom of it actually how did it start how did obviously we know it came from a bat initially yeah. but that host species in between i know there's a lot of people saying that it was started in china and uh from this lab but there's no proof there's no evidence right now but whether There's a we lot get of conspiracy the theories out there right now. It's way too many. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I heard within sort of my sort of contacts that, that while animals were being sold out of the Wuhan lab after they've been tested on, that that's person, you know, that's possible. It's feasible. But at the same time, there is no hard evidence. So, you know, you know I just think yeah. we just have to have to be careful about throwing these these are you know these theories out there because until we have proof um we'll never know but it would be nice to find out if the pangolin was that host before we got to the markets um i think there's only like a 91 percent match and it needs to be a 99 percent match really so yeah. yeah i think um right now we're a little bit everyone's in limbo we don't really know what's going on uh we don't know if this thing is going to end tomorrow or five years from now we don't know if um if the vaccine is coming when it's coming who's going to be able to have access to it when it does arrive um so there's a lot of question marks and i think nobody really knows um but yeah, it's, yeah. just uh, a, a few questions so as far as um you take the you know anybody that that goes on on your uh website or instagram you know the, the pictures are are hard to see sometimes and, sure. But I've always wondered how do you take these pictures of people or industries that are obviously you know not they're not working with you they're they're you're working quote unquote against them you wish to shut them down and they're are they not like suspicious or, or hostile towards you when you try to take pictures? Yeah, um, yeah, it, 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 it's it's a good question. Um, yeah, they're definitely hostile towards me, uh, and I try and get into a lot of these situations get in really quick and um it's better to uh you know beg for forgiveness and ask for permission as soon as you ask for permission you, you'll get shut down so yeah. so in a way people might disagree with that but if i don't get in and take an image before someone shuts me down then the world's not going to see these images they're not going to see what i see and i'm quite good at getting into these areas and getting these images for to to start these conversations to, to be up for people to be able to really see and make make their own choices and decisions and have those conversations so yeah there's been times where i've been chased down the roads i've been hit around the legs with crowbars 
I've been threatened with my life. Um, I've been arrested. I've, I've been held up by military in, in different places around the world. Yeah, you just sort of get used to it. And um, just each situation, you just have to it's, – it's a calculated risk on, on how far I can push it and what I need to do. But I think the hardest thing I've had to deal with is learning how to, to document these issues and be able to let go as in, you know, don't hold on to them. So, so I have peace of mind. And it took me a while to get my head around that. You know, I thought I was in, in, invincible. I could keep photographing and not feel anything. Um, but it does sort of catch up with you and you really need to do some personal work to be able to continue doing this line of work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's actually one of my questions. I mean, how do you, you know, there's, um, uh, I think Mark, something i forget his name but um i think he's the founder of animal hope and wellness and and they rescue um these dogs uh from china that are basically going to be you know and um i mean these again horrific horrific photos just like dogs being tortured and and he says like you know i i don't sleep at night and you know someone like you like yourself that documents really animals from from orangutans to pangolins to everything in between and you see horrific things sometimes. Doesn't that, you know, doesn't that stay with you? How do you? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do get a bit of PTS, you know, post-traumatic yeah. stress from time to time with different species, elephants particularly. When I've photographed them and sort of stayed with me for a while, and I've had to just do my job, but keep, I keep, um, just be, just keep, take a step back, as in. Don't don't be so attached to that image. Don't be so attached to that situation. Even though I want to get in there and rescue them and do or get involved, I can't. I have to keep some distance. And I've I've got myself into a good place. I sleep very well at night through um, meditation and just you know. Sometimes I'll come back after a heavy assignment and just train for two weeks. I'll I'll, I'll cycle. I'll jog. Um, you know, a lot of physical activity helps me clear my mind. And through meditation, yoga, and just having a good support um, group around me, some good friends and, and family really helps. But there was a while there, maybe, I don't know, during the sort of release of Racing Extinction, I was sort of really doing a lot of um, undercover shark fin investigations. And, and yeah, it, it, it does get you down and you do have to keep it in check and you do have to manage it. Um, like I said, but I, I'm, I'm in a good place, but there was times there where I didn't realize that it was having an effect on, you know, on my personal life and how I felt. But, uh, no, I've got to, like I said, I'm, 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 I just, it's up to everyone to work out how they can manage these situations or because a lot of, you know, I suppose I'm more of a conservationist with a camera than a, a photographer as a you know conservationist as in you've just a lot of the conservationists burn out you know because they've seen so much and and the winds are few and far between and you end up just getting um you know bitter and twisted about the situation and and that's not going to help anybody so i think everyone needs to you need to just work out and and just do some personal growth work you know everyone needs to look inside a little bit and I think you need to do it in, in, in life anyway. It doesn't matter where you are, what career you're doing or what you're doing in life. Sometimes you really need to have a stop and have a good look in the mirror and work out you know, where your headspace is and how you manage that, how you manage your resources. Conservation starts right here. <laughs> kind of thing, you yeah. know? It, it's yeah. definitely an uphill battle. I mean, it's, you know, you, 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 you fix one. It's kind of like one of those, uh, leaks you know you you fix one leak and 27 other leaks spring up and then you're like you're putting your fingers trying to fix all of them but there's just it seems like an uphill battle sometimes and uh yeah i salute anybody that you know that uh, stays um that keeps grinding and, and keeps doing it it's uh it's amazing yeah so i just just um yesterday in the in the news i don't know if you saw it and you probably wouldn't unless it was on your radar but hong kong had a huge bust of like 36,000 no sorry it's 24 tons or even 20 28 tons of shark fin 
Now that's equivalent to almost wow. 40,000 40, sharks. And they were thresher sharks and silky sharks, both CITES protected. Um, so they do have some protection. Um, and the thing is, back in sort of 2005, 2006, me and another colleague, we set up the Hong Kong Shark Foundation and created a book called Man and Shark. I documented the shark fin trade for over 10 years and literally put my life and soul into to, to raising the bar so when people would sit down to eat a bowl of shark fin soup, they'd really know what they're supporting. Yeah, so I documented it in, in Africa and the Middle East and in Asia and and really got the, these books, Man and Shark, into Hong Kong universities and schools. It was the first bilingual book in on shark finning and, and what that involves when they sat down. And I think consumption was was going down for a while, but it seems to be spiking again and, and still a lot of product is moving into those markets. And it just yeah, it's just it's just constant. And it's sad at the same time, to me the world gets less wild every day and that really that really pisses me off. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I'm I'm with you, man. I'm I feel exactly the same. Um, have you seen? Would you say you've seen the situation from when you started in Hong Kong to maybe last year when when you were there? Is are things better? Are things worse? Are things the same? How would you? How would you? Kind I of would say no. I th- I would say in general, the younger crowd in 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 Hong Kong definitely don't have boycotted shark fin soup, but it's the older generation. The baby boomers, they're, they're still pushing for it, and they, it, you know, a lot within the Chinese family, you, you know, the, the younger generation has much more respect for the elders than than so we do in the West, and and they sort of yeah. just have toe the line, and um, so I think the you know, like the younger generation, uh, way more informed, and they do want to make change, but it's still, it's just going to take time for. The, uh, the older generation to move on and whether the species is going to survive i don't know and i, I you know people like wow why, why should i care about sharks and it's it's you know i don't ex- expect people to love sharks but we really need them in that ocean realm to manage that system and a lot of our fisheries depend on the health of shark stocks and they regulate the fisheries and keep things in check um and they are really important and when you're taking literally you know, 100 million to 200 million sharks out a year, the ocean cannot sustain those numbers. And being an apex predator, it has huge knock-on effect to the other other species within the ocean realm. So it's, it, it is a, bit, a huge issue. And once again, people really need to know that they need to be in that place, whether they love them or not, and they think, they've, you know, they've got big teeth and they don't want to go swimming because they think they're going to be bit by a shark. It's way bigger than that. And, yeah. you know, more chance of I mean, getting getting in a car accident, getting bitten by a shark. But, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely it's definitely scary a shark, but the odds of you seeing a shark in your life in the ocean are, are pretty much zilch. Um, and it, it is true that, and I don't think people maybe know this, but whenever you take an apex predator, you know, there was a famous video a few years back about uh, when they took out when they reintroduced the wolves back into Yellowstone, I believe. And, yes, I love that. And, yeah, it was beautiful. And, you know, for, for anyone who just write wolves, Yellowstone, and, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And it's the same thing. You need these apex predators. They keep all the rest of the ecosystem in check. Doesn't matter if it's wolves or, you know, or bears or uh, sharks and whales. You need those in, in those ecosystems. And, I yeah, it's just, you know, I had um the other day I had uh, Paul Watson, Captain Paul Watson, from Sea Shepherd. And okay. he, yeah, and he and he was talking, uh, you know, about whales, and but he was talking, yeah, the same thing we're, we're talking about right now, and I think it's an educational thing that needs to happen because people just don't correlate the two. They're like, yeah, you know, we don't really care about whatever is happening in the ocean. It's it's far away from us. Exactly, really people. Yeah, people always. Um, oh, oh, if the koala goes extinct or if this goes, it doesn't matter. But. It really, really does have a knock-on effect. Like on the eastern seaboard of, of the U.S., off New York, I know that years ago there was a huge blue shark fishery in the Atlantic Ocean there, and yeah. they, were, they weren't managing the, the shark quotas properly, and then your whole scallop fishery collapsed. 
And why that yeah. was is because they were taking out all the apex predators, all the blue shark, and those blue sharks normally feed on stingrays and, and keep the stingrays in check. But because they took out all the sharks, the stingrays were increasing, and they started, they obviously feed on scallops. And so the scallop industry collapsed because it had a knock-on effect from the blue shark fishery. So if people, yeah, like I said, don't love sharks, understand that they, they provide services. Every species provides services for us that we can't even imagine you know, the, the level of detail that goes into keeping systems in place. And ultimately, um, it's, it's every time we lose a species, we're one step closer to our demise. It is that black and white. Biodiversity creates ecosystems. Ecosystems keep the planet functioning. So it's really important every time we do lose a species, it's, it's a big issue for the human race. And so people really need to stop and just think about that for a moment. Yeah. And there's so many stories where we try to introduce species that are foreign to, to you know, there's a, that famous story in Australia where they introduced the toads because they thought they would eat. Oh, the cane um, toad. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's still going yeah. on. And Damage now you have, done. You have billions of these toads running around Australia just demolishing everything <laughs> in their path. They're, you know, they're an invasive species. And there's so many of these stories where we thought we could bring an animal to this place where it's not natural for it to be and catastrophic things happen, you know, uh, for biodiversity in that area. So we think we're, uh, yes. we, we, we have, we have a God complex where we think we can do whatever we want with nature and uh, that we're not part of nature, that we're above it. And, uh, you know, time and time again, we see that. It, it, Welcome to 2020 like, planet earth. Here we are. COVID-19 has yeah, come to give us a that. little wake up call. I, I hope people remember this because we have we tend to have a short memory. We we tend to not remember these type of things three, four, five years from now. So I, I do hope people remember it and take this into some sort of consideration. Well, we've got runaway climate change too. I, I don't think we're going to get away with it this easy, mate. It's, you know, no, I'm no, a big no. believer in we reap what we sow, and unfortunately, I think things are going to get a lot worse before they're ever going to get any better because it's just disrespect for the natural world. It's that simple, and we can't. Keep going as a society we need to start working with nature not against it it's it's that simple until that happens um yeah i think things aren't gonna really change too much unfortunately so um earlier you mentioned uh racing extinction which is uh, again it's a theme it's a documentary uh everyone should watch it i, I love that i watched it in the cinema uh, so how how was that experience working with some of those uh, photographers, filmmakers, activists? You know, what was that experience like? Uh, working with uh, Louis Hoyos, he's a, he's a yeah, legend, yeah. great guy. Yeah. I love yeah. I love his passion. I love his vision. And I don't know if you saw the film Game Changers. Uh, of course, yeah, which, yeah, vegan athletes. That I think that really highlighted an issue that um, people could really think about and get involved and adopt a better eating eating habits um but racing extinction yeah it was it was a big film it was a big story okay i was in it but it was just it's a big message and the way they sort of brought all those different story threads into that film i think it was was brilliant um yeah work, working with um sean uh yeah me and him have been mates for many years he does a lot of the same kind of stuff um and uh yeah the whole team great crowd of people to work with and those uh markets that we investigated uh the whale shark investigation within the film we ended up shutting them down and uh now there's no whale sharks being processed up in that that area i was just told recently one of my contacts were, was up there in that region and uh there's no whale sharks being processed anymore so that that was great a small win there um yeah. but yeah um overall it was it was a great experience uh, uh yeah much more you take those that. um you take those wins as as motivation to you know that propel you forward like okay great we, we got one great now i'm motivated to do the next thing or or it doesn't matter you know you, you're gonna do what you need to do regardless yeah no for sure it's nice nice to know you you, you did do something and did make a difference on something um but yeah. look i'll just yeah I, this is what i do i'll just I, i'll keep doing what i do i think uh, it's important and uh i think i'm quite good at it um so yeah it, like i said it, it just 
everyone has their way of dealing with stuff and I justify it in my own head. I don't know. However, I, I do. I'm just going to keep doing what I do. I think it's important. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, you have good days and bad days. And one of those, you know, when you hear about that, you go, okay, we, we did something good. It's, it's, it feels good. But that's not my sort of my motivation really. Because you know? a lot, like I said, most days in, in the conservation world is like, oh, really? Another depressing story? Really? You think it's, it's going to get any worse? And it does. And you go, oh, here we go. So, yeah. um, I mean, your, your photos have such, um, I mean, I, I would characterize it as, as humanity. Um, you look at the pictures and you see, you know, a piece of you in, in those animals. Um, is that something that you try to get across? I mean, when you're looking at like an orangutan and, and you're looking into the, the eyes, you're almost like seeing its soul and you're almost like seeing what it's asking you or, or thanking you or, you know, whatever it is that that picture is trying to get across. Um, is that something that, you know, you're actively trying to, to get across? Oh, for sure. Know? I'm always trying to get that connection with, you know, really look into their eyes and really make that connection. And they're, like, they're 97% human. Really, there's, there's not, but, you know, their, their realm, they just don't have, you know, mortgages and credit cards. I think they've got it good. If we left, if we left their forests alone, I think life would be good. Sitting up there, looking across the, you know, the Sumatran jungle at the the next fruit tree, and without all the stress, having siestas. <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, of course, I, because because mate, they have feelings. They're just like us, and yeah, I always try and relay that in my imagery to to make that connection and, and people to feel something when they look at an image rather than just you know move on to the next thing and the world the way we view things now everyone's got a attention span of a you know of a mosquito oh, but yeah. Yeah. yeah but um so i like to hope that sometimes people actually stop and look at my images even if there's a few extra seconds um that's all i can do um and make that connection with the natural world. So you, we mentioned the orangutans. Um, can you explain to people about the palm oil industry and why it's so incredibly disastrous to these animals and to the ecosystems that they live in? Yeah, well, unfortunately, a lot of the last equatorial rainforests of the world, um, there is a push. Um, to exploit these resources. And I've obviously spent a lot of time over a decade in um, the Losa ecosystem, which is the last place on earth where they have tigers, rhinos, elephants, and orangutans under the same canopy. So it's a really biodiverse hotspot. It's a really, really important uh, block of forest. And it still has, it's still quite a big forest block. Um, so it has viable populations of, of these species that um, nowhere else does. So that's why I put a lot of effort into sort of documenting and working within within that area. But sadly, you have a palm oil, and it's a monoculture um, where forests are bulldozed down and uh, literally everything is, is cut down, it's burned, it, the, the land's drained because a lot of this, these areas are peat swamps. And and then they plant out these um, uh, the palm oil, and some of it's legal, some of it's illegal. Um, and the thing is, they just clear huge amounts of land, like thousands of hectares. And when that happens, you allow areas of forests to be opened up. When they put roads through to these plantations, these areas of forest get opened up, and then poachers get in there they have easier access to these areas and it's basically you know the whole system collapses once these species are taken out um so so i think there is a big call for boycotting palm oil but at the same time the world's a really hungry place and it's it's used in biofuels it's using 50 60 percent of products on the supermarket shelf so there's no way we can really replace it what needs to happen is the whole industry needs to be reformed um it needs to have a deforestation policy no more cutting down you know um of hardwoods and rainforests in 2020 there's a lot of um old agricultural uh, agricultural land that could be converted to palm oil 
Um, and I think it just it just needs better management. They did create the um, a round table of sustainable palm oil. It was supposed to be organic um, palm oil, but it's still that that mechanism's sort of failed. It hasn't really happened, but it's a start in the right direction. Um, and I think it comes down to, to governments, especially Indonesia and Malaysia, to really decide on their future and how they want to do it because they've got such huge tourism potential in these areas. Um, but unfortunately, in and around the Los ecosystem, there's not huge amounts of infrastructure for ecotourism. And uh, I think that that would really change things. And it's just, yeah, it's sort of between the lobbyists of, of the palm oil plantations and the conservationists, it's, it's just a constant war trying to protect these areas before, you know, too much is cleared to, to lose this forest. It's, it's a complex, very complex issue. Um, so as, as consumers, people can really sort of try and push the, you know, how they spend their dollars. And, and right now, if they can boy, boycott it and without too much, um, hassle, I think it's, it's good. It, it will help. And, and, but obviously a lot of people need to do it. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a complex issue. Um, and palm oil could work in a lot of these areas if, if there was other crops, other plants planted in with it. Because at the moment, when you have this monoculture, everything is lost, but they could actually do it in a way where there are forestry species within these. Um, plantations but then obviously you need a lot more land so yeah it needs it needs a lot of thought and and it just needs to be reformed and yeah we need to stop cutting down rainforest in 2020 basically you know trees uh, need to be better protected how how helpful or how corrupt are the governments in those areas sadly indonesia is is you know the, the corruption culture runs right through the country and uh my father-in-law actually worked there he was ex-hong kong police and then he um, worked in anti-corruption for a long time and he had a contract in indonesia um to help them work out and deal with corruption at top level and literally after a year of compiling this report and putting um you know, checks and balances, putting putting sort of um, instruments in place so they can actually work on this to improve um, corruption. They literally took the whole report and put everything in the drawer, locked it in the drawer, and threw away the key, and basically ticked ticked a box saying that yeah, they've worked on anti-corruption this year, and uh, that's yeah, you know just to yeah, just just to sort of show that they're you know they're actively working on it. But I once again the political will has to be there. Um, I think it has improved somewhat um, in up in Losa ecosystem where I, I've been working. There were, the first time there was uh, this rogue palm oil company called Callista Alarm, and they were charged something like twenty six um, million dollars in damages um, for illegally. Um, clearing the trooper peat swamp which is part of the losa ecosystem uh but sadly to this date i don't think they have paid those that those those charges because a lot of that money was going to be put back into rehabilitation of that area and so it's still ongoing but they were they were found guilty and and prosecuted but just yeah so it's it's an ongoing um battle really yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, a lot of my childhood, I grew up in Africa, and uh, it's it's kind of embedded into the fabric of society. It, it's almost expected, you know, like police officers and 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 government officials to to pay them. It's it they don't even bet an eye, you know. It's it's just there's some places in, in the world where it's just it's part of it's part of culture, and uh, yes. it takes. I think I think it would take it takes years, if not decades, to to change that. Maybe the, like you said, like the younger generation, they see it because a lot of the younger generation, a lot of developing countries, they go to the, you know, US, they go to Europe, Australia, and, and they see how things are. And then when they go back, they're like, okay, this, these are things we need to work on, but it's, uh, it, it, it takes time. It takes generations. It, this isn't, you know, it's not overnight. Totally. And totally. And, and 
The thing is with the Indonesia, it's just very complex. It's their biggest GDP. You know, they, they export palm oil. It's, uh, and I think India and China are, are big consumers of palm oil. I know the EU's pushed back using palm oil in their biofuel because of deforestation going on in Indonesia. So it, things are changing. It's just, it's just, it's not, it's not moving fast enough for me and the, and these species. But uh, there are a lot of great people on the ground within the Losa ecosystem doing some great work. And so um, hopefully we can just, you know, hold our ground, so to speak, and, and keep yeah. these systems in place until these, these industries do reform. So I know you have to go soon. So I just have a you know couple more questions for you, and then uh, you know I know there's some homeschooling going on, so I don't want to get yeah. in the way of that. But um, no, I've just I've just relocated off. I've just moved, but it seems to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Um, so, do you think right now is the best time or the worst time to be a, a photographer? Well, I think in it's this, a great in time. the sense in the sense that. <laughs> There's it's it's so saturated, right? Like you said, everyone with an iPhone thinks he's a photographer nowadays, and there's social media. So there's uh, there's all these pluses and there's all these minuses. I feel like it's maybe it's harder to, you know, to have your your stuff seen on the one hand, but on the other hand, you have the opportunity to have it seen. So there's, I don't know, what 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 do you think? Um, I think well, I, like I said, I think we're we're at a crossroads now of of basically crossroads of, of survival of the human race with, you know, runaway climate change. And so I think it's a really important time. There's never been a more important time to be here as a photographer. Um, yeah. That said, obviously with all these devices, the industry has changed and you have to be very creative in how you're going to make money as a photographer. A lot of avenues have dried up, a lot of the media outlets, a lot of magazines. They're just just not there anymore. Um, so you just have to be very creative in managing, and and it's all about. It comes down to you know the old story. It's not what you know; it's who you know. Having relationships with people in places you, that you can actually move your material and just align yourself with the, with the right groups and 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 do good work. And I think people will appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really important time. As a, as a photojournalist to, to, to really, you know, you, the, these images I do take, I think uh, people now are even sort of really starting to pay more attention. The amount of comments I get and, and people really want to know about these issues, they want to be informed because um, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff is, is not readily available for people to, to read about it. So I think just even with my Instagram, I can just highlight issues that people wouldn't have even thought about. And it's a learning platform for myself as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's needed. Yeah. I think I didn't phrase the, the, the question correctly. I, I was more, it was more like, is it, a, is it the worst time or the best time to maybe to, to get into photography, to start being a photographer since like it's such a saturated, like the people who already, established like yourself and, and many other photographers it's obviously the best time because you have such huge platforms where 10 15 years ago those platforms didn't even exist so i, I apologize I, did, I didn't phrase that uh correctly but yeah, no, um, sorry and i yeah. i probably wasn't listening as well i was yeah just moving um like i think that every industry is saturated every year there's more and more people on the planet it's you know it's yeah. it's a busy world the Lonely Planet is not very lonely. I remember I started backpacking. <laughs> I used to get my yeah. Lonely Planet travel guide. And, and then in about 2000, <laughs> remember, everywhere I went, it's just like, my God, the world's busy. There's people everywhere. But before that, um, I think, no, if, if people want to follow their passion and get into photography, there's always a way. There's a will, there's a way. But, yeah, it's not easy. But, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, the best way to live one's life is take the easy road. I don't think you'd be really satisfied, would you? No. Well, no. I wouldn't be anyway. Yeah, <laughs> and that's my reality. The easy road's too easy, mate. You wouldn't. You know, at the end of the day, when you sit down and put your feet up and have a cold beer, you just go, yeah, yeah. But it, 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 it tastes much better when you've you know done the hard yards. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm a bit old school on that, maybe. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I, I don't think any fruitful development comes from from having an easy life. I think um, the growth yeah. 
comes from hardships. Not 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 you know nothing horrific, but just struggling yeah. hardships and 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 bettering yourself through some sort of development. That's you know I think that's where true growth comes from. So I I'm, I'm with you 100. Yeah, I think too much comfort's no good for anybody. You know. No. I no. think um, yeah, people need to get in, out of their comfort zone and get a bit uncomfortable, and and that's where you'll you'll find the sort of you know the sort of the real moments in life that make you realize it's great to be alive, and that's what it's all about. And part of my work, I have my personal interest. I want to go to these places. I want to. I have a curious mind. I want to see these things. And I, I, I you know, throughout my whole career, I, I've documented a lot of negative things as you've seen on my instagram but at the same time i set up um a small travel company called out there with paul hilton it's a bit of a cheesy name but my business partner wanted it and where i take you know small groups of six to eight people that are into conservation and wildlife and put them in into these situations where they get up close and personal with orangutans or with cetaceans and i think that's just you know amazing now i've been i've had those privileges to be able to do that to swim with blue whales and you know, with a few people that really want to have an experience like that. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, I think anything's possible. Just you've got to believe it, I suppose. Uh, a, a calm sea never made a skilled sailor. That's a, that's a quote I always liked. And there you go. Exactly. Yeah. So since um, most governments seem to be completely either corrupt or impotent or incompetent what is the number one thing people can do to help animals in the ocean in the ocean yeah like wow. individuals what's what's the just cut down you know, cut down on this everyday thing to, to help the oceans cut down on your fee, seafood consumption that's a great start you know, just and if you do if you do want to eat consume seafood then really Inform yourself and, and check out how it's caught, line caught, Poland and line caught. Um, try and stay away from anything that's caught on long liners, per seine netting. Um, mm-hmm. Just think about the bycatch. Now, I, I know a lot of um, people here, you know, they um, eat prawns. And I've eaten prawns over the years because my brother-in-law um, has had run a prawn trawler. and. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge bycatch. There's 50, yeah. 60% bycatch for every time they catch these prawns. And so I just, those like industries. Kilo, five kilos, right? It's like for every kilo caught, there's five kilos of bycatch, something like that. Yeah, even higher, I think, with, with, with prawns or you call them shrimps over there. So yeah. I just think, yeah, people need to really look at um, yeah, how they're caught and, and reduce. Just, you know, you don't need so much animal protein. Um, and I don't expect people to be vegans, but just think about how the food got to your plate, what was the process, and and think about what you want to support and how you want to support it. And because every time you spend your dollars, you're you're supporting a industry, whether it be the dairy, you know, meat industry, or so. Yeah, just less less is more, basically. Less is more. Yeah, less less consumption of everything. Less consumption of animals, of material goods. Just there you, you know, go. that's it. Yeah, we are uh, simplify your life. We don't. Yeah, it's just don't need much to be happy. But you know, and it's easy for us to sit. For me to sit here and say I've grown up in the West. I was uh, I was born into a privileged life. Um, but I think yeah, just just. Think about the dollars you spend, and do you really need it? Um, yeah, I, I know I, I I do jump on planes, and you know sometimes I'm sort of a struggle with that. The carbon footprint I offset wherever I can. Um, I know Qantas. Obviously, now I'm living here. Qantas has a good um, uh, carbon credits program, and I pay that wherever I can. Uh, I'm basically vegan. Um, I just do what I can, and I, look, no one's perfect. We're all we're all yeah. hypocrites. There's some yeah. kind, of, you know. We just wherever you draw your line in the sand, you do what you can, and and I don't really judge anyone else for how they eat or what they do. It's their choice. At the end of the day, you have to live with it. 
And uh, once again, people just need to look in the mirror now and again. Just keep yourself in check. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think there's, you know, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but I think there's going to be a, a moment in time. It, it's kind of like how we have COVID right now. And, you know, you're staying at home to keep other people safe. Even if you're asymptomatic, you're fine. Nothing will happen to you. You're putting on a mask. And again, you're keeping the herd around you safe. And I think it's going to be similar, maybe with meat at some point where, okay, I can, I can consume what I want, but by hurting the environment and by, you know, exacerbating climate change, runaway uh, permafrost, et cetera, I'm hurting the collective. So I wonder if there's going to be a, you know, some sort of a tipping point where like, okay, we need to all look out for each other. So we may, we need to make better food choices, better consumption choices. I mean, I don't know how that's going to work in a, in a you know, in a capitalistic uh, free market society, but I think there is going to be some sort of a tipping point where things will change. Um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Well, less meat consumption really, because ultimately the carbon footprint from uh, meat and dairy is, is bigger than the whole transport industry. I think yeah. if people could just less cut down, um, that's a huge start right there. Totally agree. Um, so, Paul, I've already taken up more uh, more time than I told you I would take up, so I don't want to take up any more of it. Um, no, no, it's really... good. I hope I hope you found it enjoyable. I hope I I gave you something that your listeners will appreciate. You know. Um, yeah. 100%. Okay. Um, okay. People find you on, uh, on the on the internet on social media. Yeah, just on uh, my Instagram and Paul Hilton Photo. I do have a website, but it's really um, outdated. I think Instagram right now is the best bet to to read about some of my work and, and learn about some of the issues I've been working on. And if they wanted more details, they can always DM me and we can talk more there. Yeah, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll add it in the show notes as well. So again, I want to thank you for coming on. We need more people like you, you know, uh, that have some sort of a bigger agenda in mind that work for uh, conservation. So I'm happy, and I'm sure the listeners are happy that people like you exist, and uh, they want to do, they want to leave the world better than uh, than what they found it. So thank you. Yeah, well, we try, mate. Well, thank you, thank you for reaching out and asking for a chat. I, I know it took a while to to get there so yeah. we can actually connect but uh no i've enjoyed it mate excellent thanks for your time appreciate it man thanks so much